beautiful as it was, because we're going to Galatians 5, verse number 19, or 20 and 21, and it's not so pretty, the topic we're on. Galatians 5, 19, 20, and 21. I'll give you some good news, though, that when I get back, we're going into some happy themes on the other side of verse number 21. Uh, verse 22, 23, 24, uh, what we call the fruit of the Spirit, and that's a very exciting part. That's really where I was aiming for in the first place, but we had to lay this foundation, you know, and this foundation has been... Uh, Pretty rough stuff. Would you agree with that? And so today we're going to finish that part. Galatians 5, verse number 21, is where we're going to spend our time. That last phrase, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father... We come before you right now with this passage in front of us. We're going to need a great deal of your help today to understand and to apply. We know that our hearts and our lives are laid open before you as we open up your word. You see who we are. And what's amazing is that you love us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your mercy, your grace. We thank you for the richness of it. How you pour it upon us and, and draw us to yourself and give us all that we need for a given day. To have life and to have godliness. So we come before you today as children of yours, knowing even though a passage may stand before us and loom hard and heavy, yet it's one that you have had written for us, and you had it written because you love us. So help us with it, we pray, and hold our hearts close to your own. In Jesus' name, amen. The difficult part of our passage here from verse 19 all the way through verse number 21 are the sins that so easily beset us, the deeds of the flesh are evident, it says in verse 19. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I've been using a picture for you over the study of these verses, particularly of that of a cemetery. And I did that because the overall picture is a battlefield, an eternal, ba an internal battlefield that goes on within our lives. As we have been working through the passage, there is a conflict between the flesh and the spirit, they are set against each other. They are at war. And we are the ones that are caught up in that because it's, it's our lives that both of them seek to control. To be controlled by the flesh is quite easy. And 
the flesh, when it has its way, it leads to death. That's why I've been using the cemetery motif to understand the passage. That these things listed in verse uh, 19, 20, and 21, I gave you the picture of them as tombstones. They mark the place where a tragedy took place. And uh, there we've had the, the sins of lust in verse number 19, dirty tombstones. And we had the sins of idolatry and witchcraft in verse number 20, the first part, creepy tombstones. And the sins of temper in verse number 20, the tragic tombstones. And then into verse number 21 here, the sins of appetite, the controlling tombstones. All of those leave behind victims. Uh, Most of the time it's us personally. And yet, we don't do that alone. There's others who are hurt too. And so we get down to the end of verse number 21. Of which I forewarn you, he says, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's an alarming statement, isn't it? You read that and you say, whoa, Paul, that's an incredible statement. To whom did he write that? The context is to believers. The Galatian believers. He wrote that passage to them and and you say, well... Okay, Paul, now I've got to understand what you mean by this. See, see, throughout this letter, Paul has been addressing this Galatian church, and you may, you may say, well, he's been very stern with them. And that's true. Primarily because they are toying with issues that they should not. One of the biggest issues that one of them, along the way, Uh, was a compromise that they had in regard to doctrinal issues. There was a compromise that they were considering and and planning to go through with. And in Galatians 3, Paul addressed that in the first three verses. He said, you foolish Galatians! That's not sounding very sweet, is it? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was portrayed? publicly portrayed as crucified. This one thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That was one issue he had to deal with. And and it was pretty straightforward and somewhat harsh the way he addressed them. And then they, they showed that they were weak. They were weak in their walk, and they were prone to turn back to their previous state. And Paul addressed that in chapter 4, in verse number 8 through 11. 8 through 11, he says, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature were no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it? that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. That's a pretty harsh way to come around, to show them that they were out of step with what they were supposed to do. Another passage here in chapter 5, the issue of their behavior. 
Paul reminded them that they were free in Christ. Yes, free in Christ. And they should stand firm in Him. But they kept subjecting themselves to the yoke of slavery. And he says in verse number 7 here, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So if we followed through, we could see Paul has not just started his warning passage here in chapter 5, verse 21. He's been on that picture throughout the first uh, three or four chapters that led up to this. The dangers that the Galatians had opened themselves up to. Paul stands here, and if you will, he's calling them back. He's calling them back to the safe place, to the secure place, in a right relationship with God. He's warning them that they're in danger. Now, I think it's very important as I begin to share with you what he means in verse number 21... I, I will I will walk through some steps that are very necessary here. Because the tendency is, when we read such a warning as this in verse 21, we could come away with the suggestion that the believer is in danger of losing his salvation, his place in the kingdom of God. It can easily be read into these words. It can be assumed that the issue of salvation is at risk here. And the behaviors of verse 19 through 21 are things that eliminate salvation. That's an easy assumption to make. But I want to walk through something first with you. It's a little hermeneutical walk I need to take, just so we're on the same page here. There are basic presuppositions that come with understanding God's Word. Alright? Number one, it is God's Word. This is not manufactured by man. This is what God wrote. And what God writes is always true. Do you believe that? God's Word is true. It is always true. It is never less than true, because it is God's Word. And because it is true, and because it is God's Word, and because it matches His character in every single facet, it will never contradict itself. Never, ever will it contradict itself. Okay? Those are basic presuppositions we need to set down first before we take the next step. I want to illustrate it for you in a case study that I like to bring up. It's in Hebrews chapter number 6. Some of you would have Hebrews chapter 6, the first six verses or so, highlighted in your Bible as those that might say, I have no idea what this says. It is one of the hardest passages to work through theologically. Because here in Hebrews 6, verse number 6, well, let's back up to verse number 5, where it says, And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. What's he talking about? Well, back up one more. 
Verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them to again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. You say, ouch, what is that? First idea in your mind would probably be this. Here, some believer falls away, cannot be renewed. That's what it appears to say. Now, you look at that and you say, well, okay, well, pastor, explain it. I'm not going to explain that. <laughs> you say, well, that's not fair. I will do this. Turn to chapter 7, verse 25. Speaking of Jesus Christ, He is able also to save forever to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, which of those two is a clearer passage for you? Would you think chapter 7, verse 25? All right, let me ask you this. When you look at this, who is the one who saved you in verse 25? He did. How well did he do it? To the uttermost, forever. And what's it based on? You or on him? It's on him. All right. Now, we believe that is the true definition of salvation. He saved us by his work and according to the fact that he lives forever. Okay, there's security right there. Now, you go back to chapter 6 and say, well, then, how does that line up? My principle is this. It can't contradict it. Because over and over and over again in Scripture, it makes it abundantly clear that those who believe in Jesus Christ has eternal life. So one obscure, difficult, tough passage does not erase that. So whatever chapter 6 says, it cannot say that you will lose your salvation by what you have done. Okay? Now, someday we'll walk through it and I'll explain it better. But that's one thing I just wanted to say. It can't mean the opposite. It cannot erase the clear statement of salvation. And there you have them right there, practically on the same page. Maybe just flip one page. I could go through passage after passage that are difficult and are fine within a paragraph or two. The clearest most beautiful statement about the fact that Jesus Christ has saved you and it's based on His merit and not on yours. And I like that of God's Word because that's how I work with difficult passages. Now, when I'm here in Galatians, I say, I found a difficult passage. (laughs) A really difficult passage again. And I have to go back to my presuppositions that God's Word is true Because it is God's word, it never will contradict itself. So, my assumptions, based on just reading the words and thinking, wow, this is quite a terrible thing to fall into, my assumptions have to be guarded by God's word and not by man's opinion. Okay? So, why does Paul warn them? In Galatians chapter 5. He says, I warned you before, and I'll warn you again, and I'm warning you right now. 
I'm going to keep warning you, because you as a Galatian church are subject so easily to these sins. He would do the exact same thing to the Corinthians. If you read the Corinthian book, they were subject to the sins of their culture and their town. I just can't even picture it fully, what kind of a town it was to live in Corinth. And those believers wore Corinthian clothing all the time. You saw it in his writing as he wrote to them in book one of Corinthians and in book two of Corinthians. He kept saying, you're doing what your culture is doing. You're wearing their clothes. You look like them. You're into that. And yet he turned to them and says, you're saints of God. And he warned them and warned them and warned them. And here he does it again. Now, would we have such a need today? Considering our culture, considering our world, do we need a warning here? He says, I'm warning you, and I'm saying these things to the same proportion I said it before. Spurgeon said this is a very solemn, searching, sweeping declaration. And I think it is. Because warnings are never meant to entertain you. They're never meant to entertain you. They're alarms. To protect you. Rarely have I ever seen, and I don't think I ever will, somebody pull up to a flashing red light and a gate going down and the bells going bing, 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 bing. And they say, what a beautiful melody. Warnings aren't meant to be pretty. Alright? Okay, so you ready? This is how it works. There is a reality of danger here. We have a mandate in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, right? That's our mandate. That's a command we're given by Scripture. And here's the reality that either we are walking by the Spirit or we are not walking by the Spirit. There's no middle place here. You can't say, well, I'm kind of walking by the Spirit. <laughs> That's not possible. You can say, I'm kind of breathing. I'm kind of living. You know, you're alive or you're not alive. You're breathing or you're not breathing. You're, you're either walking or you're not walking. And if you're not walking by the Spirit, you're still walking, but by the flesh. Those are the only two avenues here. There are two different ways, as we saw in verse 17. They're set against each other. So one has a different kind of evidence than the other kind. One has a different direction than the other kind. One has a different result than the other kind. To walk by the Spirit has its manifestations and its result, and to walk by the flesh has its manifestations and its result. And they are not cooperating, they never compromise, they go opposite ways. And as he writes to these believers, he said, there you are, folks. You're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking by the flesh. I command you to walk by the Spirit because if you don't, you're walking by the flesh. Now, we've done this many, many weeks ago. We're in week 16 of this message series already. And somewhere back in number two, I think it was, we talked about the way of the flesh. 
And I'll give you a synopsis of it, just a, a, a simple picture here in verse 17. It's in opposition to the Spirit. It has set its desire against the Spirit. These are in opposition to one another, it says in verse 17. There's no compromise, there's no cooperation, there's no compatibility. For you who like to talk about, you know, technology and stuff, there's no compatibility, okay? None. Verse 19 through verse 21, there is evidence of walking by the Spirit, I mean by the flesh. There is evidence that shows in the way it dominates an individual. There's a list of sins here, and we studied through that, and it wasn't fun at all. But these are the evidences of one who is dominated by the flesh. Not one of these items are good for you. Not one. They're not good for anybody around you. Not one. Verse number 21 shows us that the way of the flesh has a destination. It does have a destination. The flesh seeks to destroy. Understand that. It is not your friend. Oh, I know. We get enticed with with fancy things, happy things, enjoyable things, things that uh, uh, appeal to the flesh. The flesh is not your friend. It seeks to destroy. It seeks to destroy. The, the flesh seeks to separate you from the things of God. It seeks to keep you away from the things revolving around the kingdom of God. This is taught in so many portions of the Bible. Uh, the context is that the end of this path, the way of the flesh... It's an evil path that leads to destruction. You've heard it said. Jesus said it. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. He says again, and these are in Matthew chapter 7. He says, For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few there are that find it. And then just three verses later, in chapter 7, verse 17. Every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And you say, oh no, there it is again. There's that warning. Woo! Pretty tough thing to read. And then he says in chapter 12, verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, because a tree is known by its fruit. Paul's statement about one who walks in the fleshly way is this. The ones who are practicing these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what verse 21 says. Let's examine that closer so we get a good understanding of what he means. To the word that I read here in the New American Standard, it says, those who practice, those who practice such things, practice, who, who do that. But the word practice is good here. Praso is the Greek word. Praso uh, denotes an action that's ongoing. 
There is another way to say do something. You could say do something, and the word poieo, I'm playing Greek with you this morning, poieo would mean an accomplishment. I did something. I, I finished the job. I, I did it. That's an accomplishment. If I use praso, it's a habitual thing I do. They're two different words. All right? We're looking at a habitual word here, a, a habit, a process. Not the accomplishment so much as the process that he's talking about. Um, what's interesting is this. If you were to ever study such a word like this, you will find that it is so often used, proso is so often used when it's speaking of evil things. I find that very interesting. It's almost always speaking of evil things. And poieto, the other word, usually is speaking of good things. They have an ethical flavor to them. One person said it this way. He said, Prasso is a verb that for habitual practice and not just occasional doing. The habit of these sins is proof that one is not in the kingdom of God and will not inherit it. Kenneth Weiss said this in his commentary. Just hold with me. It's worth your time. The word do is from praso, and it means to do or to practice. It is durative in action. Thus, speaking of the habitual practice of such things, which indicates the character of the individual. The Word of God bases its estimation on a, of a person's character, not upon his infrequent, out-of-the-ordinary actions, but upon his habitual ones, which latter form a true indication of character. Such people, the Apostle says, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Very interesting to add this, I think. This term proso is never used of God's activity. It is always set in a negative setting related to man. Now, here's another observation I simply make. As I look at this word, you've got a feel for it, but look, look at this. You'll find this interesting, I hope. Paul did not label the Galatians as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He did not say that. He's already called them brothers in Christ. So this passage is not contradictory to that fact that they are believers in Christ. Notice his particular words. Those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He did not say, you who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see a distinction? One little word sets a different tone to what I'm about to share here because he's talking about a continual character. It's a present participle. A continual character. And he's not talking about them as much as he's talking about those who live like the flesh. Okay, we're going to draw a picture here. Because we know, when we read verse 19, 20, and 21, we know these sins are quite possible, <laughs> don't we? We know they are. Any one of us could be found on any part of those pages. We also know those who practice these things, who regularly walk down the paths of the flesh, 
they give no evidence that they belong to the Spirit at all. Here's the picture. The, what he has shown us in verse 19, 20, and 21 is a picture of an unbeliever. This is what an unbeliever looks like. Why then the warning to the believer? Don't look like them. This is what they do. This is what dominates their life. This is the end of their way. This is where it leads to. They're not part of the kingdom of God. Don't act like them. Don't act like them. Spurgeon again said that all who commit any of these sins in this long black catalog are sowing to the flesh, not to the spirit. When a man sows to the flesh, what will his harvest be? The one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, rottenness, death. The sins that the sinners thought was sweet as honey turned as bitter as gall to him. There are many men and women in this world who have lived in sin until it has become its own punishment. And if it is not so in this world, it will be in the world to come. Shouldn't we acknowledge these sins? Shouldn't we acknowledge these sins as indicators of one who has a life apart from the Spirit? That's the description of the passage. This is the description of the lost. This is what he's telling us. What is the end of such behavior? I could read it to you. You could follow. It's in Revelation 22. Revelation 22, I'm going to read you about 17 verses, and you can follow along as I go. This is the end of the story. This is the picture that we're given, the end of the story. Revelation 22, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. And they will have no need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord will, God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, has sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which soon must take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the word of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. The one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gate into the city. Outside are the dogs, 
and the sorcerers and the immoral person and the murderers and the idolaters. Wait a minute, we just saw that list. Didn't we? And everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. There is a reality in the danger that is set before us here. That is true. Scripture is not vague on the whole point. But there's value in this warning. There's value in this warning because I've asked you, why did Paul write this to believers? If believers have been washed by the blood of Christ, if believers have the Spirit indwelling them, if believers have been given a promise for eternal life and God will not change His mind, why then such a passage like this to believers? To believers. Picture, if you will, and it's easy for me to picture this. Many of you have pictured this too because you've seen it yourself. Your son, perhaps your daughter, maybe your grandchildren, have enlisted into military service. Many years ago, I had the, the joy of going down to San Antonio to watch my son graduate from his uh, boot camp and to be brought completely into the Air Force. And it was such a beautiful display of pageantry, military precision, the, the band that played, the marching that they did, all that was, it was thrilling to watch it as we'd see some, some general I'd never heard of in my life get up and, and state some words and watch my son make pledges. And it touched my heart. He promised to defend this country with his life. Some of you have been there too. With his life. Here's a father watching his son make a promise like that. Are we not very much like that when we come to know Christ as Savior? Oh yes, He's done everything for us. But what's our response to Him? Why do we love Him? Is it not because He first loved us? Are we not wearing His clothing now? Are we not marching in His army now? Do we not belong to Him? How odd, how terribly tragic it is to find one who wears the garb of Christ Standing in the enemy's camp and enjoying it. You got the picture? That's Galatians 5. That's the warning. Because who we are in Christ is magnificent and beautiful. Why then do we go back to the place we've been set free from? Why do we go back there for our entertainment? Why do we go back there to occupy our time and our thoughts? 
Why do we go back there? Do you realize you've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and have been set into the kingdom of light? I'll show it to you. Go over to Colossians. Not far from Galatians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Handful of pages. Chapter number 1. Chapter 1. It says so simply in verse 12, 13, and 14 that we're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See who did it? He did it. He qualified us to be part of this. For it says in verse 13, He rescued us, right? He rescued us from the domain of darkness. And He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Helpful to understand this. The word rescue is not a process. It's a recorded as a completed action. He rescued us. Grabbed, pulled, removed. He's not still working on that rescuing process. He rescued us, it says, from the domain of darkness. Done. He did it. He transferred us. The same concept. If Paul wanted to put that in a process mode, there was a lot of tenses he could have done it. He didn't do that. He says he transferred us. Done. It's done. He's transferred us. It's finished. We have redemption. Do you see that in verse 14? It doesn't say we're trying to find redemption, or we might have. It says we have it, don't we? It says we have the forgiveness of sins. Do we not have that too? Have we not already been qualified? Are we not called here to give thanks because of all of that? It's a pretty clear statement. So if we know all that to be true, and if we know our position in Christ is right here in front of us, if we know we're in the kingdom of His beloved Son, if we know we have a share in the inheritance of the saints of light, why the warning, Paul? Because we so easily forget these things, don't we? We so easily forget these things. We forget that our practice needs to match our position. We forget and we get enticed and we give in and we follow walking by the flesh. We play in the old domain. We're the very ones who have been rescued from it. We do not belong there. It's not our home. The domain of darkness is a place of death. It's not fitting for the believer who has been transferred out of it. We're not, we're not to be found there. It doesn't match who you are in Christ Jesus. You see, the world will notice you in its domain. And they will assume that you're one of them. Are you? What other testimony can they believe? See, this is the practice of the unsaved on the path of the flesh, not the testimony of those who are rescued. So Paul says, warning, warning, warning. Now listen, warning. You are giving a false impression here. 
when you act like the flesh. A false impression. Because you know very well your salvation is not based on merit, it's based on grace. Merit doesn't put you into the kingdom of God. Merit will not take you from the kingdom of God. Only Christ can put you in the kingdom of God. And He's the one who keeps you there. So don't look at verse 19, 20, and 21 as a checklist to say, you know, if I keep my nose clean from these things, then I'm going to make it into heaven. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this is the practice of the unbeliever. You don't belong there. I thought this was a pretty interesting thing that uh, J. Vernon McGee had in his commentary, and I like the way he just puts it right down on the bottom shelf for all of us. It's so simple. He says, The Lord gave the illustration of the prodigal son who went down into the pig pen. But he didn't stay there. The only one that stays in the pig pen are pigs. If the son gets there, he will be very unhappy until he gets out. You cannot continue to live in sin. You're in a dangerous position. You're in a dangerous position. To walk by the Spirit is to obey Him. To walk by the Spirit is to trust His leadership. To walk by the Spirit is to have fellowship with Him and to seek His direction and to know how He works. To walk by the Spirit is to have confidence in what He's doing. But to walk by the Spirit is a command. Right? It is a command. For the believer, it's a command. To walk by the Spirit is the evidence that we have a relationship with God. The world is looking at our works. Yes, it is. And our works should be of the nature that they glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine. Right? Our testimony to believers to this world is seen by our walking by the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit is our protection as well from the deeds of the flesh, and it's the motivation to resist such sins when we remember that we're saved from them. We're saved from them. We're rescued from them. Don't go back. Don't go back. That's his warning. That's why he turns the corner and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the things I should show. That's where we're going to go. But today I think maybe we need to have a good talk with the Lord. What do you think? Heavenly Father, we bow before you right now. We are so aware how unworthy we are to have received your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness, to have the right to wear your name, to have a relationship with you. We are sinners. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. But Lord, it doesn't just leave us there. It says, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love toward us. And you're an amazing God. That you would do that for us. That you would look upon us with favor. Not because we've earned it, but because of your loving kindness. You would look upon us and and pull us out of the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. That you would do that for us is an amazing thing. 
We don't use the term amazing in front of grace without a reason. What you have done is magnificent. And we'll praise you forever for it. But Lord, now we look at the practice of our life, and if it's not measuring up to this, we feel the the remorse, we feel the guilt, we feel the shame, we feel that thing that has revealed that our walk is not matching our relationship. And that's the passage before us. And we've walked through it for several weeks now. And it is very uncomfortable, Lord. We do want to walk your way. We want to walk by the Spirit. We want to exemplify the fruit of the Spirit and not the deeds of the flesh. We know where that path leads. And those who are on such paths, there's destruction at the end of that. And we're not, we're not children who are appointed to that destruction. So why should we walk on it any longer? Motivate us, Lord, with these words, this warning. Motivate us. May we hear it chiming in our hearts right now. Stand away from that. Walk by the Spirit. Do your work in our midst, Lord, for we desperately need it. Change us from the inside out. Only by your power and your strength can this be done. So we submit ourselves to you. And ask that your name be glorified in our lives, our hearts, in our actions. For your honor and for your glory and for our testimony. For the spirit of peace that comes upon us and the goodness that is produced through us. In all these things, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We sang a little while ago, Be Thou our vision. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.